Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Father Michael Kaiser. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Amen. Good morning. The four Sundays before Advent, which we have in the Western Rite, have gospel readings which, if you just sit down and look at them, seem to be very strange. The first one was Palm Sunday. The next one was about the end of the world. Uh, The one last week was actually could follow up to the one we had today, which was John the Baptist sending messengers to Jesus asking, who are you? And today, of course, we get the representatives of the Pharisees coming to John asking him, who the heck are you? You What is he trying to do? You have to remember that Judea at that time was a hotbed of activity, both political and religious. It was an occupied country. And like most occupied countries, they were not happy about that. They were under the Romans. uh, And as usually happens when you have an occupying power, you had people who were more than happy to cooperate with the occupying power, whoever it might be. And you had people who wanted to get rid of the occupying power, whoever that might be. And in Judea at that time, since there was no such thing as, nobody had ever heard of separation of church and state, what is that? You know, there can't be any such thing. Uh, Those kind of things got mixed together. If you wanted to get rid of the Romans, it was because you were a good Jew. And if you were a good Jew, then you wanted to get rid of the Romans on some level. Many of these groups were primarily religious in their message and talked about spiritual things and the spiritual liberation. Others were much more upfront about the fact that, uh, you know, if it came to violence, they were more than happy to throw the Romans out by violence, although the chances of doing that were rather slim. You had a special group of assassins who were known as the Zealots, and the Zealots uh, specialized at walking up to Roman officials in the marketplace and just kind of sticking a stiletto into them as they walked past, you know, and the guy's laying there bleeding on the ground, and nobody, of course, noticed anything. This was one of the reasons why much later Pontius Pilate was in Jerusalem during the Passover, because he was there as Roman governor precisely to try to keep a lid on things, to try to keep it from blowing up again this time. Neither was there anything unusual about somebody going around claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one who had been prophesied to come and free Israel from whoever was oppressing it at the time, from their sins, from occupying powers, whatever. Uh, There were those before Jesus, there were people behind Jesus. The last one was a guy named Simon Bar Kokhba, who came about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, claiming to be the Messiah, gathered a founding, uh, a following rather, and like most such groups, they got clobbered by the Romans and they disappeared in, into history. So all of this ferment is going on all the time. You know, it was a hotbed, you know, think Berkeley in the 670s or something like that. Uh, you know, it was just over and over and over, you know. Uh, again, I was talking to somebody last week. This has nothing to do with much of anything, but 
you know, they're going on and on about how horrible things were, that things had never been bad in this country before, this bad before, that this guy was the worst of all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I went to college in the 70s. You remember the weathermen assassinating police officers and blowing up laboratories and killing innocent people? Do you remember Kent State, where the students got shot on the college campus? Do you remember the leftist riot at the Democratic National Convention? Complete incomprehension. We remember nothing because we learn nothing. And that does apply to this here. We're always looking for some sort of method we can control and manage rather than allowing God to do what God knows he must do. Now, in this case, John the Baptist begins a ministry which is wildly successful. People are ready for something. They're ripe for something. They know that what's going on currently is, is uh, not working. They know that their king, Herod, who was an Arab, I mean, Herod was only a quarter Jew. The rest of him was Arab. Uh, was not what they wanted. They knew that he was corrupt. They knew that their own priests were corrupt. They knew that the Roman administration was corrupt. So they were looking for something. So when John the Baptist starts out in the wilderness there with his eating locusts and honey and, and wearing this, uh, you know, John the Baptist suit, it attracts people because he speaks very openly and directly. He tells the soldiers, stop whining about how much money you're making. Do your jobs, obey your orders, and don't worry about it. Okay? Just do what you're supposed to do. He tells other people, okay, clean up your act. Live according to the law. Live according to the ways that God gave to you. Live simply, you know, as I obviously am doing. Uh, he told uh, Herod, who it says heard him gladly. Even with Herod, there was a, a response. Uh, you got to get rid of your wife. You know, she was your brother's wife, and you married her, and you shouldn't have done that. And that, of course, is what eventually gets him arrested and then uh, beheaded. So he spoke simply, he spoke directly, he spoke honestly, and people responded to that. And for a while, he gathered a tremendous following. He had a bigger following, probably, than Jesus did when he got started. And there are, by the way, still followers of John the Baptist in the Middle East today people who still follow the teachings that he had. Not a lot of them anymore, but they are still there. So the Pharisees, who were part of the ruling group of the Jews, you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, who would eventually, in many cases, be sympathetic to what Jesus was teaching because they had already accepted the idea of life after death and resurrection and, and things of that sort. The Pharisees sent out representatives to ask this guy, who was another one who was God that gathered a following, how many times have they seen this for crying out loud? So, who are you? What are you doing? And they came with specific questions. You see, the Jews believed that before the Messiah came, Messiah simply means the anointed one. In Hebrew, it would have been Mashiach. Uh, in Arabic, it's Messiah, Yeshua Messiah. Uh, for uh, before he came, Elijah would appear. Now remember, Elijah was one of the great Old Testament prophets who, according to tradition, had not died. The scripture just says that he was taken up into heaven 
and a fiery chariot. And if you go to an, uh, you know, if you go to St. Elias, uh, you'll see icons of him flying up to heaven in uh, a, a uh, fiery chariot. So then, and then they said, they said, art thou the Christ, the anointed one, the Mashiach? And he said, no, I'm not him. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you that prophet? Now, they had also developed a tradition that Moses would return before the Messiah came, and that's what they meant by that prophet. Are you that prophet? Are you Moses who was supposed to? No, I'm not him. They said, what are you doing? I mean, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not Moses, what is this all about? And he says to them, I am the one crying, make straight the way to the, make straight God's way in, in the wilderness. And they went, okay. So why are you baptizing people? And here he points out that there's a profound difference between the baptism that he was giving and the baptism that would come during Jesus' ministry. John's baptism was simply a symbol. It's like what Baptists believe about baptism. It's simply a symbol of church membership. Nothing changes. You're still who you were. But if you're baptized, that means you belong to this particular church. So John's baptism was simply a symbol of the fact that after hearing what he said, people said, you know, guy's got a point. We've got to clean up our acts. We've got to stop whining about how much we're being paid. You know, we've got to start treating our wives with some measure of decency. We've got to stop slapping our children around. We've got to stop getting drunk at night. You know, we repent of what we are done. We're sorry. And, and we want to be forgiven. And so the baptism was a symbol of their desire for forgiveness. But it was not in and of itself forgiveness. Because John couldn't forgive anybody. I can't forgive anybody unless they actually sin against me and ask for forgiveness, and then, yes, I forgive you. But I have no power to forgive people of their sins. We don't believe that in the Orthodox Church. We don't believe the priest himself has any personal power, any personal authority that is given to him. Forgiveness comes from God. This is why the prayer the priest says at the end is, you know, may, may God forgive you, not I forgive you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, that forgiveness was limited in what it could do. The forgiveness that's coming under Jesus, that baptism, is life-altering. Now, regrettably, since the vast majority of the people we baptize today are children, that's not regrettable, I'm not saying that, but because they are children, we've gotten away from a real understanding of what baptism is. Most of those who were baptized in the first 300 years of the church were adults. And they were adults who came to understand just how much they needed to be forgiven. For example, the Jews. The Jews believed that forgiveness could only be gained in the temple in Jerusalem. You went there, you made your sacrifice, your offering. That's why it was the goal of every devout Jew to get to Jerusalem for Passover once in their life. Get there for uh, the forgiveness of sins, to get there for making the offering and, and, and the reception and what have you. 
And that's why so many people came at Passover. It's estimated that the population of Jerusalem was probably around 200,000 people every Passover. Normally it had maybe 10,000. And they had to artificially extend the boundaries of the city as far out as Bethany, ring a bell? That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, Bethany. That's where Jesus stayed. And they extended the city boundaries out that far so that everyone from Bethany in could say they had been in Jerusalem for the Passover. That fulfilled their obligation to be there. So, in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. You had no place to go to be forgiven. You no longer had a place to go to offer your sacrifice in the temple, to make sacrifice to God and ask for forgiveness of sins. You were stuck. What do we do? What do we do with this load of sin we're carrying? We know we're guilty. We know we break the law constantly. What are we going to do to be forgiven? And the Christian said, well, let's talk to you about that. There's this guy that we call Jesus, and we also call the Mashiach. And we think he fulfills all the prophecies we've been reading and studying all the time for a thousand years. And that had a real impact. Because suddenly forgiveness was available. But you see, what happens to us when we're baptized as Christians is that we do change ontologically. Our sins are forgiven completely, at least to that point. And it says that we die with Christ in baptism and we rise to new life, to the beginning of a new life. Now, it's easy to jump to the conclusion, and some people have, that that means we've got some sort of automatic ticker punch for the kingdom of heaven, and that is not true. We rise to the beginning of a new life, and it's our responsibility to live that new life to the best and most extraordinary degree that we can. But what John is telling these representatives of the field, of the Pharisees, that one is coming who is in your midst now, and you don't even recognize him. He is in your midst you're looking at the guy who right now has the dog and pony show. But there's one coming after me who's got one heck of a dog and pony show, and his has angels and archangels and apostles and all kinds of people and beings. And it is he whose shoe I am not worthy to unloose. John was simply the forerunner, the one whose job was to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. And to a large degree, that role has devolved upon ourselves. We live in a world which is incredibly screwed up. It's a world of violence. It's a world of meanness. It's a world of cruelty with occasional bright splashes of light. And anyone who can watch what's going on around them and can stand to watch the evening news, cannot in their right mind say that things are getting better. You know, it used to be that, you know, every day and every way we're getting better and better. Well, no, we're not. We simply are not. We stand now in the place of John the Baptist as we come to another celebration of Christ's nativity. And I'll talk more about that tomorrow evening. But as we come to this celebration of Christ's nativity, we come as those who once again have to prepare the way of the Lord, who have to explain to people 
that the reason this child, you know, we get so wrapped up in, in all the romanticism, all the romanticism of my great-grandkids forced me to watch The Year Without Santa Claus one more time. I may just end it. You know, all the schmaltz that goes with everything that we prepare for. Uh, the celebration of Christmas beginning on Halloween uh, and through, through Thanksgiving with the lights up and, and, the, and the music going. And uh, as I said, if I hear Felice Navidad one more time, I will freak. Uh, all of this is warm and it's wonderful. And yeah, it's nice. I'm not talking down nice. But we have to have some sense of perspective as to what is really going on. And even with, you know, the nativity scene and all of that, and, and the child and the manger and the, the, the furry animals and the shepherds and the angels and what have you, this child has been born for one purpose, and that is to die. When he did not have to die. And this we must witness to that what is going on now is the coming into the world of the one who made the world, becoming one of us through conception and birth from the Virgin Mary, taking from her a human body, a human soul, human emotions, an unfallen nature, but still a human nature as you and I have. Ours is just touched by sin, his is not. So that he is everything we are, just as he is everything the Father is. So the one that stands between us and God is one transcendent figure, both God and man, fully, completely, and absolutely, the only, a unique being. There has never been one before, there will never be one again. And it is he who is born in the most inoffensive, user-friendly way possible. And that is as a small child with a mother and a father and shepherds and angels and cuddlies. It's easy to get stuck there. And for many people, their image of Christianity is precisely that. The writer G.K. Chesterton once said that, you know, people who are, are militant atheists at this time of the year, something still touches them. Okay? They see the sign of the manger and they remember something from their youth. They see in a mother and a child and something of God's mercy reaches out and touches them. But the problem is many of them got stuck there. And as they entered into the reality of life in a very sinful, fallen, and violent world, they never grew beyond the baby Jesus to live with an adult Jesus. This is the witness we have to make, somewhat similar to John the Baptist. Christ is born, Christ will die. And if he doesn't do those two things, you and I cannot be saved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.